I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Bill and I discuss the issue of legacy chips and imports from China. We talk about Chinese manufacturer success as a global exporter of automobiles. And we cover the ever-changing situation in the Red Sea and the effects on trade that armed conflict between Israel and Gaza is generating. Thanks for being a listener. Hi, Trade Guys. Nice to see you again. Last episode, you made your predictions for what could happen in 2024. And from here on out, starting now, I get to see if you were actually right. Well, remember the r- fundamental rule of this business, though, Thibault. Um, if you're wrong, it doesn't matter because nobody remembers. You know, by the time you turn out to be wrong, people have moved on to other things. And the wonders of this podcast is if you're right, we will keep reminding you that we were right week after week after week. So if we were right, we will tell you. It's a good living if you can get it. <laughs> So a month ago, the House Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the U.S. and the CCP released a report on economic competition with China. And the first two issues we're going to be discussing today seem to be complementing that theme, looking at how China's formidable production capabilities are influencing world trade and potentially the U.S. security landscape. So the first issue has been top of mind for experts since semiconductors have become the cornerstone of U.S. economic security strategies. And that's worries over China flooding the market with legacy chips. This is growing in relevance as House select panel leaders in a letter to Catherine Tai and Gina Raimondo pushed the Biden administration for action. So trade guys, can you explain the concerns when it comes to China and legacy chips? Well, as Scott would say, we've seen this movie before because it, it is the Chinese model. You know, in an economy where credit is allocated by the state and not by the market, you inevitably get overinvestment, overcapacity, overproduction, and then you get dumping. So you, we saw it in uh, steel. We saw it in aluminum. Right now, we're, uh, the Europeans in particular are facing it on electric vehicles. We've seen it on solar panels, wind turbines, and I think we're, we are all not looking forward, but anticipating seeing it on commercial aircraft uh, at some point in the future. And the only argument is it is going to be five years in the future or 20 years in the future. This is the Chinese model, you know, to capture market share through underpricing uh, as a means of dealing with the overproduction that they've created. And this is what's happening on, on legacy chips. For those of you that are not walks on semiconductors, legacy chips are the Older chips that, for the most part, do mundane things. They operate your automobile. They operate your refrigerator, your toaster. They operate an internet of things. They are not seven nanometer chips. They are larger than that because they don't need to be that small. And there's an enormous market for them. There's an enormous market for them in the automobile sector and in a whole bunch of other sectors. And some of them do have military applications as well. So this is not... Uh, this is an export control issue uh, at some levels as well. 
But what the China committee has realized, which I think others have known also for some time, is that China is building up its capacity to produce those chips, you know, in addition to trying to catch up with the U.S. on, on the very high end of design and production. They're ramping up their production of legacy chips, which means that we and everybody else in the world is going to face a huge number of these things coming in. That has created in the United States concern about security and concern about economic competitiveness, you know, the, the idea being we can't afford not to make these. And, you know, we went through exactly the same problem in the 80s on chips with the Japanese. And there was concern that they would run our companies out of business in the 80s and that we needed to have these companies. And the government responded with a complicated strategy that involved uh, a tax tax policy, trade policy, uh, negotiating a, at that time really limits on, on Japanese imports, and industrial policy, because that's when Semitech was created. So we've not only seen the movie before, we've acted in it before. And now it's coming around again. Uh, this time it will be a little more complicated. The Chinese are not as accommodating as the Japanese are when it comes to working out these problems. They're also focusing not just on us, but other countries as well. And that that gets to the nub of the problem, which I'll get to in a minute. We have tools to deal with it. These things are dumped and subsidized, and it shouldn't be too hard to come to that conclusion. So the government can initiate that complaint, or the private sector can initiate that complaint using our standard anti-dumping countervailing duty WTO permitted tools. It gets a little complicated uh, over the question of whether we should be going after the chips themselves coming here to be incorporated into products, because chips are not really an end product, or whether we should go after the end products that contain the incorporated chips. Either way, I think the dumping and subsidy tools apply. And we've used those tools to good effect in similar situations, steel being a, a good example solar being a, a, a current example. Uh, so we know the tools work. The problem I think we will run into is that if you want to talk about you know market viability, we're going to competing, be competing, we hope, with uh, Chinese uh, producers in third markets. And so like we've uh, tried to do with steel, not entirely successfully, and what we would like to do with some of these other products is is have these tools used multilaterally and get other countries to do the same thing. And my sense is it's going to be a lot harder on chips than, it's going, than it was on steel. It was hard on steel uh, anyway. Uh, and the reason is because there aren't that many countries that produce chips. So it's, it's one thing to go to other countries that also make steel, which is a lot of countries, uh, and say the Chinese are destroying your industry, which they are, and you can get them to stand up. But in the chip case, we're going to have to go to a lot of countries that don't make chips, uh, don't have a, a dog in that particular fight, and are going to say, why do you want us to add tariffs to chips when we don't have a domestic industry to protect? All we're doing is making an important input product more expensive for us, and the net effect of that is you guys will get, the Americans will get a larger market share and the Chinese will get a smaller market share, and we'll pay more. I don't think that's a winning argument multilaterally. So while we can take care of the problem domestically, uh, I think, with a, 
an effective use of our of our trade laws. I'm not sure we're going to be able to multilateralize this one as well as we've been able to multilateralize some others. You know, this uh, this is a problem that I think will continue to repeat itself into the future because of the structure of the industry. Remember Moore's Law. I mean, Gordon Moore wrote that article about each generation of integrated circuits are are half the cost and twice the speed. He wrote that article in the 1960s. And it still remains a, an operative idea, at least in the industry. But what you have is the, uh, the, the IT chips tend to be uh, something that requires massive amounts of capital and has a very short life cycle. And so you wind up with overcapacity in an older generation very, very quickly, and, the, and it, it depresses prices. So I think the first thing to sort out is whether this is a national security issue or an or a unfair trade issue. I tend to side with Bill that this is, this is one where the trade remedy laws already exist, and it's probably we could we look at should look at it as a problem of unfair competition or unfair trade dumping and subsidies specifically. I think that's that would be consistent with both uh, the '80s experience with Japan and I believe it was the '90s on DRAM chips with Korea, and uh, all, all of which became instantly oversub, oversubscribed and oversupplied to the market prices dropped and never recovered. Uh, so this happens in the in the integrated circuit business, as high tech as it seems. Separately, I think there is a strong argument, the national security argument, for the leading edge semiconductors and the, the equipment that makes leading edge semiconductors. And I would prefer to see the Congress focus on that and preserving our, our lead in, to the extent that we have it in the, the most advanced semiconductors than to worry too much about a single economy and it's basically an issue of dumping and subsidy. Not that that's immaterial, it's just, it's a different kind of problem. Well, different tools, I think yeah. that's the point. Leading edge uh, issues are an export control issue. Right. We don't want to export that technology or that equipment for security reasons. Legacy chips are an import problem. Uh, they're they're not an export problem, so you lose uh, you use ADCVD tools, I think. Yes, and, but you always also mentioned the the idea of there are two ways to fix a problem like this. You can you can trip the other guy or run fast faster. Here's one where I think Congress ought to focus on how we run faster because I think that's that's where they can have a lot of impact. If you look at the legal and regulatory hurdles uh, that slow down American firms in this space. And I imagine the industry could give you a very long list. We've got a lot of room to run faster and uh, let, let the uh, trade remedy laws handle the import side of it. And uh, let's, let's advance the technology. This is, uh, gets into the, uh, just digress a second, in, into the permitting issue. And over the years, the United States has just gotten slower and slower at, at, at the process by which it makes decisions to allow construction to occur. Because I ran into this directly last night. My local neighborhood pool decided that they would, uh, the pool was 60 years old, so they decided to take it out and build a new one. And of course, if you think about pools, there are, you, you have a tight calendar to do that, you know, because you can't start until after Labor Day when the swimming season is over, and then you have to be finished by the next Memorial Day when the next season starts. And I learned last night that digging the hole for our pool was delayed eight weeks 
over permitting issues. And this is local, just getting local government, in our case, the county, to deal with the red tape associated with permission to dig a big hole and not a new hole because there was already a pool there. So we were, I think, enlarging in the space just a little bit, put us eight weeks behind schedule. Now, fortunately, they moved, you know, they caught up some of that time. But, and that's a small mini example with no security implications at all. Just, you know, personal pleasure for people who like to swim. But multiply that and you can see this is going to happen with chip factories many times over because it's not going to just be local localities. It'll be state governments and it'll be the feds as well. Guys, let's now turn to China's automotive sector. The PRC has reportedly dethroned Japan as the world's top auto exporter in 2023. So first, can we go into how China achieved dominance in the global auto export market in the first place? Well, yes, it's a, I find it an interesting story because uh, in many ways, what China has done, well, first of all, it has a breathtakingly large domestic market for automobiles, something in the area of the new car sales are something like 35 million cars a year, vehicles a year, uh, roughly twice the size of the United States, which is the next largest vehicle market. Uh, so it's it's amazing. It's an amazing domestic industry. But their export success reminds me very much of uh, Japan and Korea, and, and after Japan, Korea. What these companies in these economies do is build cars that are useful in the home market, which tend to be low cost and simple and reliable, you know, basic vehicles. And they find markets for them all over the world, except in the United States. <laughs> so this is one of these stories that I find interesting because had it not been reported in the Wall Street Journal, I don't think many Americans, even people who, who specialize in the American auto industry, would have even noticed because there are so few cars from China here, maybe, maybe none but not more than a handful. There, there are a few that show up, but I think BYD, uh, which is a, a very large Chinese brand, is has an exhibit at the Consumer Electronics Show. Other than that, they really have not broken into the awareness of the American consumer or even the American industry. And so my, my opening principle is just because it's not visible here doesn't mean it's not happening. And in this case, uh, China's export-oriented auto industry has been very successful in places nearby like Mexico. And so they, they're now, the I think, the leading import uh, brand in Mexico. Uh, they don't have brand image issues. As uh, one one uh, man on the street interview said, hey, look, my iPhone's made in China. Why don't I, why don't I worry about a car made in China? The iPhone's great. So uh, it was an interesting observation. And they are, they are at the low end of the market. They're inexpensive. They're simple. Uh, but they seem to be finding, uh, finding a market. Now, the United States for 50 years has basically let the government stand between the buyer and the seller. We did that for probably good policy reasons, maybe not so good. But since the 1970s, cars are built according to what regulators want and automakers can make. Uh, and what that leads to is... Uh, a domestic market that doesn't have low-cost, simple, efficient vehicles available for sale anymore. It's an unfortunate circumstance for people who can't afford automobiles or, or would like to have a car and, and, and are buying used because they can't afford a new car. But our vehicles in this market tend to be, tend to be more expensive, more complicated, and often very expensive to keep on the road because maintenance costs, repair costs are higher because of the complexity. 
though sometimes they cost more to insure as well. So uh, the the uh, industry is uh, is different here in the U.S., but it looks to me like China is succeeding the same way Korea succeeded and Japan succeeded with an export of a product that they that is well received in the home market and finds an audience outside. Three comments. One, I'm always impressed at how quickly this has happened in China. By coincidentally, I happened to be in China when I was on the Hill with a, a Senate delegation in 1986. And one of the main stories in the local paper in May of 1986 was they sold the first private car in China in 1986. And now it is, what, 30-odd years, 35, 38 years later, and we've got really the largest exporter in, in the world. The market has become extraordinarily large and extraordinarily sophisticated in what is uh, an amazingly short period of time. The second point is, this is the same movie that I was talking about earlier. You know, they got there through subsidies and they're getting, they're going to get market share through dumping. So it raises the same issue. And now, you know, if you don't have a competing domestic product, you may not worry about this so much. They're cheap cars. The Europeans are facing the, the dilemma, particularly on electric vehicles, because they don't have a competing product right now that's made in Europe. And they're facing a wave of Chinese imports. And they've initiated a dumping and subsidy investigation against the Chinese cars. We won't know the results of that until this summer. But I rather expect the results will be that they'll find either dumping or subsidization or both. And that we're going to see tariffs. Two other things that are worth noting is, one, the Chinese growth this past year was mainly due to sales to Russia and sales of internal combustion engines, not electrics, to Russia. So basically what China has done is fill the gap that was created when the Western suppliers pulled out. And so one, one interesting question will be whether they'll be able to continue exporting at the, at the sustained level that they are now. It depends a little bit on, I think, the future of the Russian economy. But they filled the gap. They sold a lot of cars. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that... Stays, no, that's a very good point, Bill. And, and a lot of the a lot of the market share that was gained by Chinese exporters was lost uh, from European companies like Volkswagen, which had supplied the Russian market. And Volkswagen, very frankly, lost share uh, export share in Mexico as well. So there, without sanctions, China seems to be succeeding in a market head to head with with European and and other Asian producers. You're right that the Russian market is a is kind of a, a sui generis from uh, the so byproduct of the sanctions regime. Well, and Mexico is an important one to watch too for two reasons. Not only has it become a big export destination for China, they're starting to set up manufacturing facilities there too. And so then we're going to face an import problem. We have, you know, one of the reasons we have not faced this problem with cars is because of the Trump tariffs. The automobile tariffs on China are 27.5% as opposed to 2.5% from elsewhere in the world. If the Chinese start producing in Mexico, it'll create an interesting issue. They will not, if you look at electric cars uh, in Mexico, they won't, in all probability, won't be able to qualify for the tax credit here because they'll have Chinese parts and components. But even if they can't meet you know, the USMCA standard that are for zero tariffs, if they have enough Mexican content to be considered Mexican automobiles, that means the tariff will be 2.5%, not 27.5%. So that makes them a viable presence in Mexico. And I think it's probably a matter of a relatively short period of time, meaning a year or so, before
before we may be seeing lots of Chinese, uh, not Chinese made, but Chinese branded cars that are made in Mexico coming into the United States. And then we'll have another debate about what are we going to do about that? Yes. And then we'll, once again, you have two twin policy goals in opposite directions. You want the higher, higher penetration of electric battery electric vehicles, which you'd get with a low price entry like PYD cells in Mexico and elsewhere. But there's a move afoot to um, protect uh, domestic jobs with how the electric cars are made and subsidized here. So we'll see which, which goal takes precedence or perhaps just the usual confusion. Well, it's in a way that's like the solar debate. You know, do you want to install more solar panels and accelerate the green tech transition? Or do you want to insist that the trade rules be adhered to because these things are dumped and subsidized? We're going to be talking about that in the future because that's about to be litigated. Mm -hmm. People that follow this know that, that the Chinese panels directly have been cut out of our market because of dumping and subsidy duties that go back a ways. And the response to that was classic. It was like pushing on the balloon. Chinese export to the United States went way down. And exports from uh, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, and I think Cambodia, I guess, went way up. And that allowed people in the United States to allege what's known as circumvention. That namely, you know, the Chinese panels were making their way to these other countries, being uh, minimally reassembled there or, or converted or had some minimal processing done on them. And a new label made in Vietnam, made in Thailand, stamped on them then being forwarded to the United States. And so there was dumping complaints made against them and commerce did what it's required to do by law. They started to investigate. And the president then, before the investigation was concluded, it's still not concluded finally, uh, the president announced that, that he was going to ask the Department of Commerce not to impose any duties that they might find in the investigation for a two-year period is he wanted to uh, assist the that part of the solar industry in the United States that installs the panels. They came in and said, if you knock these out of the market, we're not going to be able to get to green uh, the way you want us to because you're cutting off all of our sources of supply. So the president declared a tariff holiday. That didn't stop the investigation, which under the law had to proceed. Commerce preliminarily determined last year that these things were being subsidized or dumped by those four countries, and they are heading now towards a final determination, which will determine the actual amount, which won't have any short-term effect because of the president's ban, but that expires this summer, as I recall. But in the short run, what the president did is being litigated. The domestic solar manufacturers filed a suit at the end of last year, the very end of last year, basically arguing that, that he, the president acted illegally, that there's no legal basis for uh, the Commerce Department not to impose the duties that are required by the anti-dumping, uh, by the Tariff Act of 1930, which contains all these provisions. And so that case is going to be tried. We'll see how it turns out. As a non-lawyer, I am not an expert. I'm inclined to argue that I, I think that proponents or the plaintiffs in this case have a pretty good argument. You know, the statute does not give the president the authority to interfere and the president has interfered. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes out. And once again, it'll be a battle of what's more important, defending the trade laws and, and trying to tackle the market distortions that they're designed to prevent 
uh, or accelerate and transition to green technologies. Hopefully we've seen and acted in this proverbial movie enough that we'll know our lines. Switching gears to our last topic, uh, lately we've thought about the intersection of trade and security from the perspective of critical and emerging technologies like semiconductors or quantum technology. But an ongoing story reminds us that economic security issues also come from more traditional sources, in this case, shipping lanes. Yemen's Houthi rebel fighters have been attacking vessels on commercial shipping lanes in the Red Sea since late November of last year. The group recently fired their largest ever attack of drones and missiles targeting shipping in the area, prompting responses from U.S. and U.K. forces. So trade guys, can you tell us about the trade and economic consequences of these attacks? Well, this is a developing situation. So uh, what I'm going to do is try to summarize it very quickly in, in plain language, but then uh, give our listeners places to keep keep on top of the story because it is unfolding day by day. Tibold, you're, you're absolutely right. Armed conflict uh, has, has, has many uh, consequences, but it tends to harm global trade very, very quickly. It certainly has in this case. This is the case of the Israel-Hamas conflict, and it is trade through the Middle East to Asia, particularly, that is affected immediately. Now, let's describe the geography just a minute. The area we're talking about is basically where the continent of Africa meets the landmass of the Eurasian continent. I think the way to think about it is the Red Sea is the shortcut to Asia from the Mediterranean. So the Red Sea has at the north end is the Suez Canal, constructed, I think, at around 1860 or so to shorten the trip to Asia for, uh, actually, the French built it because they were tired of the British having the concession down at the Cape of Good Hope at the, the uh, south end of Africa. But whatever reason, the canal's been operating and essentially is the Mediterranean's gate into this passage, water, a maritime passage between the continent of Africa and the landmass of Eurasia. And then the south end, you have what's often known as the Strait of Hormuz, the Gulf of Aden. You have on the, on the west side is Yemen, on the east side is Somalia. Uh, and there's been instability in this area for some time now, uh, because choke points always draw this kind of attention. But uh, uh, Tibalt, you're right, because of the conflict that broke out October 7th, beginning November 14th, Houthis, who are a, a separatist group basically mountain people in the na nation of Yemen. And they appear to be armed by and uh, allied with Iran, have decided to attack merchant shipping that's somehow connected to Israel. So they're taking a side. And that affects the shortcut called the Red Sea, including both that south end uh, at the Gulf of Aden, uh, Straits of Hormuz, and uh, the north end at the uh, Suez Canal. Uh, now, how much of a shortcut is it? Well, Amsterdam, if you're leaving Rotterdam with a container vessel going to, say, uh, Mumbai or Shanghai, you go around the Cape uh, of Good Hope, it adds 3,500 nautical miles, more or less, and 10 days to the transport. So it's a very expensive alternative. It's one of the reasons Egypt can charge something like $500,000 toll to go through the uh, Suez Canal. Egypt is losing toll money, but what's happened so far is that the IMF uh, indicates that there's a total reduction in ship traffic through the Red Sea merchant vessels by between 20 and 25%. This is focused on the container ships and the more valuable of the tankers. So that would include sort of liquefied natural gas tankers, uh, vessels like that, and also 
roll-on, roll-off vessels that are full of automobiles. So it's those high-value vessels, mostly because of the higher insurance costs associated with that high value that have been diverted. Uh, also, you have the Maersk Lines, which has an association with, with Israel. I'm not sure how close or distant it is, but there is that association. And Maersk was the early decider to uh, go around the Cape of Good Hope and divert divert their container ships. But as I said, it's it's container ships. It's mostly driven by high value, and there's there's lots of actions right at the moment. So the the the, the, the French Navy is escorting some of the French-owned vessels through the Red Sea. Uh, there is a, an ally, allied uh, activity uh, led by the Fifth Fleet, and that operation is 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 trying to interdict these unmanned aerial devices that are in use by by the Yemenis. So it's a mess right at the moment. And the costs have gone high very quickly. So the, there's an IMF report called Port Watch that's done with Oxford Economics. It's quite useful. Also, I would recommend Drury, D-R-E-W-R-Y, which is a security services firm that covers this area very thoroughly. In addition, there the uh, group called Ambry, A-M-B-R-E-Y, another security firm that uh, that that is assessing the threats and has great visualization. So the listeners can stay on top of it with Ambry, with IMF Port Watch, a partnership with Oxford University. Drury then reports spot prices of containers, uh, which have gone about 61% higher now for a 40-foot container than uh, two weeks ago. So it's a very unstable situation. First effect uh, will be the trade between Europe and Asia. But that won't be the where, it's, where it ends. It's going to affect global shipping. Interestingly, the drought in Panama, which has kept large vessels out of the Panama Canal, caused vessels from Asia to be diverted through this very route to Rotterdam. And then particularly if they're delivering on the east coast of the United States, they were going to Rotterdam and then transatlantic rather than through the Panama Canal. So, th- so there's some U.S. cargo is going to be affected by this. It's a major supply chain disruption, and we're going to have to keep an eye on it. There are lots of people are looking. Nobody's got any answers, but there are lots of ways to get your questions answered. There is some not entirely parallel precedent for what to do about this. Um, about, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, we had a wave of piracy, actually in the same region. And it ended up being very well-organized piracy coming mostly from Somalia, whose government had, had collapsed and had become kind of a lawless state. And the, the pirates were well organized and would come out on small boats and, and take over very large ones and then hold them for ransom. Captain Phillips was the movie. Yeah. Yes. There you go. Uh, we've seen that movie too before, right? Yes. But the countries that were affected, including China, actually, and this is this is why I mention it, uh, got together uh, to put a stop to it. <clears throat> and basically, they created a multinational task force of navies that started patrolling the area and would come to the rescue of, of, uh, of ships that were being uh, attacked and would, you know, arrest the pirates if they can and in some cases would, uh, you know, sink their boats or disable them. And the Chinese participated in that. To me, it was an interesting case because the Chinese don't have a long history of participating in cooperative multinational ventures. They did in this one, and I think they did because they had commercial interests that were at risk. You know, they had their ships, and they were they had stuff that was on on the sea that was coming to China or going from China that was at risk because of these pirates. So they were participated, and uh, the piracy uh, in that part of the world virtually disappeared for a while. 
bloomed elsewhere. If you go to the west coast of Africa, it's a, now a bigger problem there, but that's a topic. This one is different because there are other geopolitical implica implications. Piracy is easy to get into a multinational agreement on because the pirates yeah, are- we've always hung pirates. Yeah. Lawless criminals that, you know, nobody nobody's for them, unless, you know, you are rooting for Captain Hook and Peter Pan. But this is a case where there's a pol political overtone because the Houthis are saying they're doing this because of Gaza, and it's all tied up in the uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and, and thanks to technology being available to them, they can be selective as to which vessels yes. they target. Yes. So, so we'll see if they can. But the, the way to deal with it, and it's, there's a beginning of this because we're there, the British are there. I think the way to deal with it uh, is also multinational and get a multinational force in the region to protect the, the tankers and container ships that are going through. If we don't do that, then what Scott said is going to continue, which means cost increases, insurance and price increases are going to continue to go up, and that's going to have a significant effect on trade. We'll see how nations respond, and maybe we'll get Tom Hanks to play one of you in this particular movie. I think he has more hair than either of us, but that's all right. If he wants to play me, I'd be honored. <laughs> we'll get in contact with this team. Dream on, Tebow. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, guys. We'll be back. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.